A quick note before the episode begins. This conversation involves graphic discussions related to abortion and the abortion industry. Please consider turning off the episode if children are present and continue listening with caution. Planned Parenthood has been true to its mission from day one, and its mission was to annihilate what Margaret Sanger believed was human weed. She was a racist, she was a eugenicist, and she did not want this population of new freed former slaves growing in America. So Planned Parenthood deliberately, even to today, targets poor communities, poor women, which are disproportionate African-American and Latino, to make sure that they do not produce children. Now they can spin it any way that they want to, but that is the reality. It is true to their mission that we want these population numbers low. The problem that they have with the Latino community is it's a growing community rooted still in a lot of Catholic belief systems. So they are still producing their children. But make no mistake, Planned Parenthood is in their schools, in our hard hit zip codes, pushing their ideas to keep abortion alive, to keep your children numbers low. For all that the left loves to talk about anti-black racism, leftists never seem to want to discuss the single most direct and lethal attack on black people in America today, abortion. In New York City, more black babies are aborted than born. The single most dangerous place for a black person in New York is in his mother's womb. And this disproportionate harm toward black people is not a bug of the abortion system. It's a feature that has been baked in from the very beginning, as Star Parker learned when she began to investigate the deepest causes of the breakdown of the black family. Right now, I would strongly recommend you go to hallow.com slash choose life, because today's world is a scary one. Too many people don't seem to care about the truth. And I would suggest that that's all rooted in people becoming less or really just anti-religious. That's why it's more important than ever to keep our relationship with God strong. Hallow is the number one Christian prayer app in the United States. It's like Calm or Headspace but rooted in Catholic faith. It is the perfect resource to deepen your relationship with God and find peace through audio-guided prayer and meditation. Several of Hallow's meditations encourage you to choose life and to pray for others to choose life, such as their Litany for Life with Lila Rose. Hallow is free to download. It will help you find peace and calm throughout your day. So do it. Do it right now. Download the app for free at hallow.com slash choose life. That is hallow.com slash choose life. Let's take a listen to Star Parker. I'm Star Parker. We fight poverty and restore dignity through messages of faith, freedom, and personal responsibility here in Washington, D.C. through a policy institute called CURE. We work on welfare reform and all related issues. We call it hee-hee. We work on health issues. We work on education issues. We work on uh, housing issues. And we work on economic issues. We're trying to break the cycle of poverty. So most of our focus is on our most distressed zip codes in the country. But we're trying to change the laws here in Washington, D.C. so that people living in those zip codes can live free. And you, you've talked quite a bit about abortion in the United States. What first brought that topic kind of onto your radar? What brought the topic onto my radar is that when I had a born again experience and people started talking about public policy, I grew up a business that was involved in a lot of public policy issues. Of course, abortion was one of those issues. So I started talking publicly about my own experiences of buying the lie of the left, that abortion was just a convenience uh, that it was a blob of tissue and everything else that you kind of heard coming out of the 70s and going into the 80s about life and where it begins and all of the questions that people were asking. So I brought my own personal experiences to the table. 
table that after the fourth time I went into one of their so-called safe, legal, rare clinics is when I started really thinking about the decisions that I was making, had a gut instinct way down deep inside that there must be something wrong with killing your offspring. I mean, all the, the messages in society said it was just fine. Uh, and I had actually got caught up in the culture that knew we were pregnant. I knew I was pregnant. So you just stay pregnant as long as you could so you can get a welfare check and then you go kill what God calls his reward. But after that fourth time, it started to bother me. And then after my born again experience, I stopped doing it altogether. And then it doors started opening for me to make my story public. And so it's one of the things that we fight here at Cure against abortion being legalized because it feeds a narrative that women are victims, that they can't control their sexual impulses, which makes our job harder to diminish the welfare state government overreach in our most distressed zip codes. So I think everyone, you know, right, if they were to look at you right now, they'd be like, oh, she's probably always been pro-life, you know, oh, she's probably always had this view. But, you know, that wasn't always the case for you. So can you kind of take- Oh, no, I, I wasn't always pro-life. In fact, I was like most Americans who just believe anything. You kind of get lost in the culture and a culture of moral relativism. I was doing whatever I wanted to do. I believed all the lies of the left, that my problems were someone else's fault because I was African-American, that America was racist, I shouldn't mainstream, that I could do whatever I want to because I was poor and others were wealthy. So I blamed them for my distress. And you can get just very lost in your decisions. So after early decisions, Teenage decisions of criminal activity and drug activity, sexual activity was next. Sexual activity led me in and out of abortion clinic after clinic until I ended up on the welfare state. Then a Christian conversion changed my life. So I just stopped doing those things. Went to college, got a degree, started a business. And after that business was destroyed during the 1992 Los Angeles riots is when I started focusing on these types of issues, including abortion and what it has done mostly to our most distressed communities, uh, which means disproportionately to the black community. And correct me if I'm wrong and tell me if you don't want to talk about this, but uh, you you did have a, a couple abortions early on in your life, correct? Like four. Four, right. Yeah, oh, I was reckless. And in fact, one of the times I don't even think I was really pregnant. So I just count that one because, you know, now when you're living that kind of reckless life in the middle of South Central Los Angeles, you're running into the abortion clinic, the same guy's there. Of course, he's just going to pretend you're pregnant because he gets a big fat check from the taxpayers of California. So can you, you know, what would you say to a young woman who is, you know, really struggling not knowing what to do. She feels, you know, kind of trapped. She, she's pregnant. Uh, maybe she feels pressure from others to get an abortion, but, you know, she just doesn't know what to do. What do you say to that woman? I would say that she's a mother now, and mother is just the most precious place to be. If she herself cannot uh, raise that child until they're 18 years old, then maybe she should allow someone else that beautiful benefit of raising that child. But she is a mother. Once you're pregnant, you're a mom and somebody wants to call you mom, and that person is going to love you dearly. Yes, there will be adjustments in her life, your life, uh, if I can speak directly to her, but those adjustments uh, can be handled. Uh, she has the ability to handle them, and motherhood is precious. One of the, one of the big arguments that the pro-abortion movement uses is, you know, if abortion is illegal, uh, thousands of women will die a year uh, trying to, you know, perform unsafe abortions. You know, it's interesting that the, uh, the pro-choice movement has always used fear tactics and scare tactics to keep people from becoming parents, to keep women from having children, to keep them from being successful in their life or procreating. But when you think about, will women today go into back alley abortions using clothes hangers and all the other things that they have distorted and lied about for the last 48 years? The answer is no. And in fact, this is the same people who push chemical abortion into our society. So what the real question on the table becomes, is this the sin? Is this moral? Is it good for a society, a civil society, to allow for its offspring uh, to be aborted. You know, when you think about right now, the challenges in our society, because we, we are in crisis when it comes to marriage rates, fertility rates. This is something that uh, those that keep lying about the activities of women uh, to support an idea that they've had that people are better off without children so that we can save the environment, we need to have that discussion because it's rooted in a lie, and it is hurting us. It's hurting our entitlement programs. In the next 15 years, our society would have more people over 65 years old than under 18 years old. This is not healthy for a society. When you think about fertility rates and what it means to 
procreate for that generation that we have promised entitlement, Social Security, Medicare. So the pyramid will collapse if we continue with these low fertility rates. And we are at the crisis level as a society right now. In order to reproduce yourself, you have to be at 2.1. Right now, we're at like 1.6 when it comes to reproducing ourselves. Um, what about the argument that the pro-life movement is just a bunch of religious zealots who want to force their beliefs on the rest of the country? Well, this is interesting. If the religious community is making an argument that we need to procreate, that we need to have a society, that we need to have a civilized society that has measurements and moral frameworks over what we're going to do with offspring, uh, then yes, we can call them zealous if possible. In fact, I'm glad that we have what's called a religious zealot population to say that it's you know basically immoral to kill your offspring. And in addition to it being immoral to kill your offspring, we have other implications that rise as a result of marriage collapsing and fertility rates collapsing. Marriage collapsing for one, we have now a reckless generation of young men because they have not been socialized through marriage and that escalates crime rates, it escalates low educational rates and many, many other, other social ills that we have to deal with just because of abortion. Let, let's, let's jump to that topic because that is something that I really wanna talk about. Um, you know, I think the pro-choice movement often says that, um, it, it is a woman's right to have bodily autonomy in that, you know, it's just men forcing women to, uh, to, you know, be pro-life and to, you know, try to keep the baby. That's men forcing that to happen. Is, is that true or is the opposite true? That it's, it's oftentimes women who are driving the pro-life movement and that, you know, the fathers of these children are oftentimes pressuring women to try to get abortions. I think biology is driving this discussion. When you think about the difference between male and female, females' bodies tell them it's time to reproduce. Once a month, their body tells them it's time to reproduce so that we can maintain society, so that we can maintain humanity. Now, if you're asking, does marriage socialize men? Let me put it this way. If we're asking ourselves if marriage is a social stabilizer to where when men and women attach in marriage and procreate. It's this much more healthy environment for children to be raised in. The answer is yes. The question that pro-choicers need to ask themselves is if they believe that people should have children. And this is where you're going to find much discussion within those pro-choice circles that they don't believe it. They really believe that children are a drain on society. They want a perfect world uh, and, and they want an environment clean of what Margaret Sanger used to call human weed. So they target particular communities of poor people to not have children. Yeah. So I guess last question on this before we get to that topic, um, does abortion in some ways let men off the hook and, and kind of, you know, allow them to avoid responsibility? I think abortion has not only collapsed marriage, but it's created a tremendous challenge socially with men. Men now are not marrying. Women are not demanding marriage before sexual activity. What birth control did and abortion did is allowed women autonomous in sexual activity, but men get the most advantage for that because now they can hop around. They don't have to be responsible. And if a woman does decide she's going to have that child, they are less likely to take care of that child because they think that abortion was one of the options that she should have perhaps taken. Often you find the men are forcing the women to take the option of abortion and pressuring them to kill that offspring because they've had that promiscuous sexual life and encounters outside of marriage. So yes, marriage has collapsed. So men now are free to be promiscuous. And the challenge that we have as a society is promiscuous men are often producing dangerous men because unmarried men are not, uh, uh, the, the products of unmarried men are the ones that we're seeing in our criminal activity. 75% of the young boys in our criminal justice system come from single-headed households. 95% of the men that are in our, our prison systems on a federal level have no relationship with their dad. So abortion has collapsed traditional family life and it's creating all types of other social ills. So, Let's let's go back to the 1960s. And, you know, you you mentioned this, you know, I, I know you've mentioned this in various tellings of your story. Um, but, you know, what what's happening in the 1960s uh, just societally and how does that, you know, 
how did that impact you personally as, as a young woman? I think in the 60s, it's interesting when you look back at that time, up until uh, this emphasis of connecting ourselves to, I guess you could say, um, uh, enlightenment, uh, we were a moral society. Our, our laws were rooted in Judeo-Christian heritage and ethics. And so you had people that married before they had sexual encounters and then they produced children. So you interrupt this in the 60s. FDA said, you know what, let's disconnect sexual activity from marriage by uh, having the pharmaceuticals produce birth control. Fast forward, what happens? Mid-60s, you have marriage unraveling real quickly. Keep in mind that in the 60s, by the time we were to the mid-60s, 75% of the adult population was married. Today, that's less than 50%. And in black communities who got hit hardest because they were most vulnerable during those 60s, marriage rates are now 30% of the adult population, which is tragic. It's why the young men are just lawless. They don't know what to do because they have not had that formal uh, stabilized family life. So couple that. So first you have this attack on religion that says, well, you know what, we can disconnect marriage and sexuality. Then you have marriage collapsing. Well, there's nothing really wrong with this. Women need to be free from men anyway. Then you have, well, but if there are any natural consequences, we'll have a welfare state. So now we're paying people to not marry and we have the results today. So how did how did the sexual revolution and everything that kind of happened in the 60s into, you know, the early 70s, how did that influence your life? I think that by the time I came of age, uh, the the norms, the the traditional norms of society were already unraveling. I mean, my parental household had books called I'm okay, you're okay. We were already starting to see society not have any type of moral framework. And when you don't have a moral framework, you start making choices on your own. And when you start making choices on your own, you can be led down some paths of, of you know, least resistance, shall I say. So uh, in my own personal life, as I mentioned, it has just started unraveling uh, into all types of activity, criminal activity, drug activity, sexual activity, in and out of abortion clinic after clinic, welfare activity, just absolute lawlessness. And what's interesting, though, is when you think about the 60s, the activities that I was engaged in by the 70s weren't even being called lawless anymore. We were starting to go into an environment to where promiscuity was just uh, the norm. And when you have normal living, promiscuous living, that you can do anything you want to live in, you're not going to have formation of healthy families. And in my community, it began to hit hard. By the time Dr. King died, five years later, Roe v. Wade was national law. So when you're unraveling all of your traditions, norms, and you're now having a civil rights movement that ends in all of the cities around the country erupting in violence, people got very lost. It was an opportunity for Roe v. Wade to pass into federal law, and the people that got hit hardest were the most vulnerable. You know, I'd love to, I'd love to jump into uh, a little bit of the, the history um, pre-Roe you know, pre v. Wade, it, to, to whatever extent you're, you're comfortable talking about it. You know, one of the one of the big arguments that I've seen Planned Parenthood make lately uh, is, you know, abortion's always been accepted societally. If you go back to the, you know, as early as the 1600s, whether whether you're talking about Native American tribes or, uh, you know, early colonists of, of what would become the United States in Europe, everyone was fine with abortion before what was called quickening. Can you, are you comfortable talking at all about, you know, that argument? Because it's, that seems like a relatively new argument, trying to normalize it kind of back into the past. Right, right. I think you've always had people that were secular who didn't mind killing their offspring. And in fact, if you remember some of the gods of old, they would bring their children even after they were born and, and, and worship you know, as a part of worship, they would have their children killed. This was one of the ways that they were able to be prosperous, if you will. So you've always had this discussion between morality of the God, the creator, and or those that worship the creation in, in, in and of itself. And so when people talk about being enlightened, when they talk about um, what is the value of children, whose responsibility is it, whether they're going to live or die. We've always had these discussions in society, but you've got this moral sacred thread that says, no, this is not your call. Once you're pregnant, you're a mother. So tell me a little bit about Margaret Sanger. When we think about the history of African-Americans in this country and moving then into an adoption of the country, leaving slavery to now be adopted, the worst thing that could have happened to Black life is Margaret Sanger. 
a eugenicist entering into this opportunity for people to live free, four million former slaves to adjust to a new life of freedom in a brand new country for themselves. But you've always had eugenicists. You've always had those who believe that people are less human than themselves. Uh, she studied under people like Nazis to say, how do we figure out a perfect race? How do we figure out a perfect people. She was a very complicated lady personally. I mean, my goodness, it was too bad that she put all her personal problems onto the rest of society, but she was successful in doing that. She wanted to make sure that certain populations of people were controlled. And so she built out uh, Planned Parenthood. She built out a mission statement, a marketing campaign. She went after African-American leaders and pastors to pay them to market to their people, to kill their offspring so that there would not be that many blacks in this country. So was that her was that her objective? She had a plan, a project called the Negro Project that specifically wanted to keep the numbers of black people in this country low. It's tragic that she was able to convince so many and Planned Parenthood in their marketing campaign with all of their money were able to convince so many to promote this type of evil in a community of people that were so vulnerable, trying to move into this new adopted relationship that they had with a country that was built on freedom. It interrupted life for us. You start seeing now through those 30s and 40s, this constant narrative that your children are your problem. Your children are your drain. In order for you to successfully move into healthy living in this country, you're going to have to have less children. And the more that messaging went out there, the worse things got. And especially as they started building out a welfare state to pay people to have fewer children, to pay people not to get married. The country itself started unraveling morally, and Black people got caught up in this. Um, how, you know, how much of the... Uh, the current struggles of the black community in America do you attribute to uh, the legacy of Margaret Sanger? I think that, I don't know that I could put a percentage, but I believe that the unraveling of our moral framework and fabric at a time when black family life was just adjusting to this new reality in a country where they could be prosperous and perhaps even by now go and heal the other countries in Africa from which they were from, this is really, really challenging because what has happened to African-American communities as a result of Margaret Sanger's plan to interject birth control, to interject abortion in a very vulnerable, poor community has unraveled our family life. Fast forward to the 60s after America started really unraveling and it's overall uh, views of the world. The, the traditions, the Judeo-Christian traditions in which it was founded were starting to unravel. You start fast forward looking at the black family and find the impact. It is so underappreciated that by the mid 60s, we still had in the black community 78% of husbands in their homes with their wives raising children. Fast forward after the welfare state, which was deliberately planned in conjunction with Margaret Sanger's ideas of eugenesis and controlling these populations of what she called human weed and what a lot in our society thought of as a, a nuisance, the children of former slaves. You fast forward through that generation, five years after King was assassinated, you saw Roe v. Wade as national law coupled with a welfare state that paid families to dismantle. Look at the challenges it's called. We're upside down from the 78% of husbands that were in their homes with their wives, raising children, to today we're 75% children born outside of marriage, we're 30% adults married, and we're seeing the impact on our children. The low educational rates, the, 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 the high crime rates, the abortion rates, the welfare rates, the AIDS rates, everything ill is hitting this particular population simply because of Margaret Sanger's plan to annihilate this population, their families, and make sure that they did not have success in this country. What's the overall kind of timeline of America's views on pro-life versus pro-choice? You know, how have, how have views shifted 
uh, on the issue of life since the 60s. I think the views of people in America are shifting because of technology. When you think about the moral thread that was in our society, you had Catholics that were arguing against abortion when it was just legal in a few states. They knew that this was a crime against humanity. They knew that we should not be doing this. And the Catholics had structures for people that had orphans, children that uh, perhaps didn't have a healthy family uh, place. And so they were taking care of these particular children. So America became in real denial as they started buying into this idea of enlightenment and education and higher education and higher learning and materialism. The next thing you know, our children are inconveniences. And so people just wanted to ignore the reality and ignore the obvious that when you're pregnant, you're a mom. Ignore the fact that when you're pregnant, you are going to have an offspring unless you interject something. So what did we do? We interjected birth control. Pharmaceuticals got involved and they make a whole lot of money. And the challenge we're having today with pharmaceuticals involved in trying to uh, limit the amount of pregnancies that occur in our society is just creating other problems. They've had to readjust the estrogen levels over and over again because they found out, oops, over time, the estrogen levels high in a pregnant woman hurt testosterone levels in men and boys. And now we have disproportionate numbers of effeminate men. So we're having to adjust our society to even that new reality. Abortion has deeply hurt us as a society. When you think about those same 60s where you had a moral thread of then Catholics saying, don't do this, you had a society of Protestants and others that said, yeah, but it's convenient. But let me add one thing, because you also asked about, you know, when did we see a shift to more pro-life? We started seeing that shift just relatively recently, maybe 10, 15 years because of ultrasound, because technology is now showing people that they can't lie to themselves anymore, that we can't pretend that the obvious isn't true, that there's a life there, that it has meaning, it has a, a, a viability, it has all of these um, components that are just undeniable. And, and, and people are now realizing that uh, <laughs> you got to come up with another excuse as opposed to it's just a blob of tissue. And that means that we can have the discussion. We've been having the discussion. A whole lot of pregnancy care centers started growing up around the country. So now people are without excuse and they're realizing that this might not be a good idea in the long run. And it's certainly not a good idea going into our future. So would you say technology, you know, that, that the, the debate and people's views on life maybe really started to shift uh, because of technology? I think that the ideas started to shift because of technology that people then had to confront the lie that they have been telling themselves that this is just a blob of tissue, that it's an inconvenience for us as a society, that we should allow the obvious, that number one, a certain people group are being targeted. Uh, so we want to keep those numbers low uh, anyway. Uh, and so we have to confront that part of American society. But number two, the inconvenience of it interrupting someone on their journey to materialism by getting a college degree or whatever reasons that families come up with the why they would talk their own daughters into killing their grandchildren. So in 1959, the American Law Institute uh, released a draft proposal that would make abortion legal in cases of fetal abnormality, uh, rape or incest, or when there was a threat to women's health. Um, can you, can you weave a little bit of this, that, you know, the, the history of, you know, the, the, the efforts that were taken kind of in, in the fifties and sixties to try to normalize abortion in our society? I think that one of the reasons people were trying to normalize abortion in the American society is because America was built on ideals, ideals rooted in Judeo-Christian heritage. So that means that abortion would not be tolerated in this new environment. But there are always people that want a perfect human race. There are always people throughout society that have superiority complexes. And they then look for ways to change the views of the people so that they can promote their agenda and worldviews. So of course you have uh, documents and people looking for ways to uh, include abortion into this new founded country. We, we, you know, they're going to come up with all kinds of reasons. We have too many people that, that have disabilities. We have too many people that have too many children. We're creating other problems. We're running out of resources. So you're always going to have people that are researching those types of ideas. I think that when the real tipping point came for America is when the pharmaceuticals were in bed with the government to push uh, uh, birth control onto our society. And what was what was Margaret Sanger's involvement with the pill? 
I don't know that Margaret Sanger was directly involved with the pill becoming legal. Her mission was to get it there, uh, but it didn't become legal until in the 60s. And so her most of her work was in the 30s, 40s-ish. Right. But let me mention, we, we focus a lot of time and attention on Margaret Sanger, who some might say she's the mother of the feminist movement in America, but there's no question there were feminists in America. There were many, many women who did not like the idea of having to control their sexual impulses inside of marriage. Men have never really wanted to do that, but the Judeo-Christian ethic stabilized men to have to do that through marriage. And there were always women that didn't want that as well. So, you know, to what extent does the um, do the racist views and beliefs of Margaret Sanger still resonate through what the abortion industry does today? Oh, the racist views of Margaret Sanger are alive and well. In fact, her bus here in Washington, D.C. is right next to the civil rights movement. Her bus is in the civil rights museums, the African-American museums, because her idea that abortion Will, uh, will, will help alleviate poverty resonates with people that are poor. They really think, well, maybe that will help. And so they bought that lie. And so today we still have that lie existing. To, you know, when you think about the Planned Parenthoods and how they're targeted specifically in communities of color, make no mistake that this is racially intended to keep these numbers low of these populations that eugenicists do not think should share the same environments they do. So, but doesn't Planned Parenthood, and I'm going to play devil's advocate here for a second, doesn't Planned Parenthood actively say that it's because they want to fight racism that they, that they're trying to give access to, you know, healthcare that, to, to, you know, impoverished communities or to the African-American community or to minority communities that, you know, white women have had, you know, for decades. And so, you know, their, their argument is, oh, well, right now the system's racist and we need to, we need to provide more of access to abortion to the communities that don't have the sort of access that white communities have. Yeah, Planned Parenthood has been running from its original mission for generation now. Uh, and in fact, they're still trying to convince people that the fewer children you have, the better off you're going to be. And so they're trying to flip the narrative to say, well, the reason that poor people are still poor is because they keep having children. And the reason that they keep having children is because society is racist against them to force them to have to have these children. I mean, what a mockery to procreation, and to how to really escape poverty. The answer to poverty is freedom, personal responsibility. It's not a welfare state. It's not abortion. In fact, what we have found and through research and just through human interactions is that abortion really hurts women once they've had one. And so they become much more reckless in their sexual impulses. They become much more desirous to have a child, even if that child is outside of marriage. And then they continue in these life patterns of self-destruction. And so the next question I have, you know, uh, I, I ask because I only because I think it is helpful for people to hear the personal side of, of uh, some of these answers as well. You know, I think some a lot of people say, oh, I celebrate my abortion or abortion doesn't hurt me. You know, there's a list of doctors and scientists who say, oh, well, there's no evidence that abortion creates, you know, emotional harm for women who have it. Do you feel like personally the abortions that you had uh, hurt you or damaged, you know, you or or made you feel more pain? I think that the challenge we have with this one-size-fits-all narrative of the left that pretends that abortion doesn't have impact, moral impact on people, mental impact on people, medical impact on, on people, is a distortion of the reality that we're unique individuals, and so you're going to be impacted differently. I work very closely with pregnancy care centers. I'm telling you, we have, we have people coming in that say, even on my deathbed, I'm going to say I'm sorry one more time. I have personal friends who had one abortion. And they're miserable in their personal lives, even though they look like they're successful. They've not bore children. They're in their 60s. But personally, well, I was so reckless, I didn't even know who the father of the children were. So you have different life patterns for different people. So you disconnect uh, in that scenario, as opposed to someone that they love that person who got them pregnant and he walked away. So we can't have a one-size-fits-all discussion about how abortion impacts anyone. But what we do know is that abortion impacted that child. What we do know is that person is no longer here. What we do know is that if someone was born in 1974, 
right after we legalize abortion, those pregnancies that were aborted, those folks would be 49 years old today, 48, 49 years old today, perhaps in the height of their careers, perhaps with families of their own. So what we do know is that we have disrupted family and uh, formation and generational family formation. What we do know is there are a lot of grandparents today uh, that do not have those grandchildren. We have more with Star coming up in just a moment. First, though, be sure to text PRO-LIFE to 47581. Because as the country grapples with the aftermath of overturning Roe v. Wade, the pro-life movement has come under fire from far-left pro-abortion extremists. Not only have leftists firebombed and vandalized pro-life clinics in multiple states, but online pro-life groups have experienced mass censorship by Google, Facebook, TikTok, you name it. That's why Live Action has been working tirelessly to find ways to spread the truth about abortion and share resources with those who need it most without relying on biased big tech. If you want to join Live Action's Fight for Life, text PRO-LIFE to 47581 and opt in to receive updates from Live Action about their ongoing work to end abortion. Texting PRO-LIFE to 47581 means you won't be at the mercy of the big tech censors in the ongoing fight for life. Can you talk about the um, the impact that it has emotionally on women and how it's hard to even you know get women to talk about their pain? Yeah, I think that one of the lies of the left and the and the pro-death community is that we're detached from realities, that we're detached from our own emotions. Many women experience many different ways that they deal with their abortions. And we are hearing from women, older women, younger women. This is a very deep, painful area that given time, some express it. In fact, many of our pregnancy care centers in the country today allow for naming opportunities. This is how many people are saying, I just can't get past it. I can't get over it. And there's not enough help for them because you have this community of people that keep insisting you better not even think about the emotional problems that come from your abortion. You better never say it out loud. And so you have a lot of hidden pain, not just with women, with men. The men are now starting to come forward because they know their lives aren't the same. They remember that child. There is a couple that all of us know that because she's a major actress, she's not ready yet to come forth with her story. But her and the man that she was pregnant by, they've never been together again since then. But on the anniversary of that abortion, they talk to each other every year after year after year. And we're talking 30, 40 years ago. We're talking about people like, remember Nicki Minaj, when she was asked by Rolling Stone magazine, do you have any regrets? You're on the top of your game. What does she blurt out? I regret the abortion I had when I was 17. How did she do that? How did that all of a sudden come up out of her? You think maybe she's cried a few nights over that abortion? It's a lie that this doesn't deeply impact people, but it does impact people differently. I mean, my goodness, I, I didn't even know who I was pregnant by, so it didn't impact me at all. Plus, I was on drugs. So once I got my forgiveness from the Lord, I forgave myself. But there are others who were intimately involved with the person. I met a man who, his wife and them got talked themselves into an abortion. They had three beautiful girls. They talk themselves into having an abortion because they bought that lie that is not going to impact us, that it's really just a decision that we're making, that it's just a choice. We've already got three kids. After that abortion, they couldn't even look at each other again, and they ended up in divorce. This is reality of what happens when people have abortion. But what the left expects them to do is hide that pain and do it alone. And this is one of the biggest challenges I have with this chemical abortion now. They're going to see that baby in that toilet and have to hide it from themselves now and bear that pain and suffering alone through their life. Abortion is deeply hurting us as a society. It's hurting people, real people. Um, what, did, what did Planned Parenthood have to gain from the loosening of, of morals in the 60s? There are two things that Planned Parenthood gained in loosening of morals in the 60s. One, a slap at God because they didn't want rules over their sexuality. And he has very strong rules over sexuality until marriage. But number two, money. It's about a whole lot of money. And for people that don't that, that try to pretend that tax dollars aren't involved, they're lying to themselves. All of my abortions were paid for by the state of California, which through their programs get money from Washington, D.C., their medical programs. So all of us have blood on our hands as a result of this constant keeping abortion legal in our society so that 
one corporation can make money. They make a lot of tax money. They make a lot of individual money simply by killing offspring, by killing someone else's grandchildren. Do you know how much money, do you know what the stats are? Planned Parenthood, depending on the, where you're getting the exact numbers, uh, because they like to hide the monies that they're getting from the government, but some estimates are about $500 million. Okay, so you, everyone, you know everyone, they know everyone, they know everyone, they know and go 10 times that are just sending their money straight to Planned Parenthood instead of sending your federal dollars to Washington, D.C., because they're the ones getting the recipient. You got to ask yourself, why does the Department of Health and Human Services have an agency in there for population control? They don't call it control, but they do call it population affairs. Why do we do this to ourselves if we are, are not complicit in this movement to keep certain population numbers low? Um, what, what percentage of Planned Parenthood's uh, earnings come from abortion, either directly or through federal funding? I don't know exactly how Planned Parenthood manipulates their books to pretend that uh, they're doing some educational things with the monies that they get from taxpayers. But what we do know is that Planned Parenthood is the largest abortion provider in the country, and they perform a lot of abortions. They're probably at 400000 Well, times that by just $1,000, because when you start thinking about the low part of abortion being four to 600, you know, when you're just a few weeks pregnant, all the way to the high part. And don't forget, Planned Parenthood is complicit in doing abortions ninth month, ninth hour. They don't have any problem with late-term abortions. So you're thinking about averaging out up to about $1,000 a pop. Um, let's, let's talk a little bit about where Planned Parenthood, you know, is based. So, you know, they, they say, you know, that minority women need greater access to abortion. Uh, and you know, and yet you've talked a lot about, you know, the percentage of Planned Parenthood facilities that are already in minority communities. Can you can you maybe touch on, you know, where are these Planned Parenthood facilities and what does that maybe say about their kind of underlying goals? Planned Parenthood has been true to its mission from day one, and its mission was to annihilate what Margaret Sanger believed was human weed. She was a racist, she was a eugenicist, and she did not want this population of new freed former slaves growing in America. So Planned Parenthood deliberately, even to today, targets poor communities, poor women, which are disproportionate, African-American and Latino, to make sure that they do not produce children. Now they can spin it any way that they want to, but that is the reality. It is true to their mission that we want these population numbers low. The problem that they have with the Latino community is it's a growing community rooted still in a lot of Catholic belief systems. So they are still producing their children. But make no mistake, Planned Parenthood is in their schools, in our hard hit zip codes, pushing their ideas to keep abortion alive, to keep your children numbers low. So we're already starting to see the Latino population, Hispanic population rooted in South America and Mexico reduce their numbers. It's bad enough that the white community is not reproducing themselves uh, at 2.1. They're at 1.6. It's bad enough the African-American community is just at that place where we're not reproducing ourselves. The Latino community is not far behind. And what what's the percentage? Because uh, I think you've talked about the, the percentage of Planned Parenthood facilities uh, and, and how disproportionately they're in uh, minority communities. Can you talk about that percentage? I've seen some numbers where Planned Parenthood has 78% of their clinics located within a mile of a distressed zip code in a black community with some Latino in that community. 78%. They're deliberately targeting. And everywhere they run out of business through the little clinics, they build these monuments to themselves inside of these poor communities to convince women to control their birth rates, to control their birth rates. That's what they're after. They do not want that black community. In fact, they're probably depressed that the black community still keeps growing, that it's still 14% of the population. They don't want this, that it grew from 4 million former slaves to 45 million uh, African-Americans in the country today. This is not a part of Planned Parenthood's agenda. Their agenda is to annihilate this race of people because they believe in a superior race. And that superior race that they believe in has nothing to do with melanin in the skin, okay? Even recently, I think uh, the president of Planned Parenthood said that uh, over a thousand women a year would die 
But, you know, they're specifically talking about, you know, Dobbs. Oh, you know, if it becomes illegal again. Uh, That's a lie anyway. When when you think about, okay, so we're going to start comparing. Well, we're going to have a thousand women die uh, because uh, uh, Dobbs may end abortion or may block grant it back to the states for them to decide if they are going to have abortion legal or not. This is an absolute fallacy. Where in the world would they know that? How do they know that those thousand women just won't become mothers? How do they know that people just don't have abortion because it is legal. I know personal friends who the only reason they had abortion because it was legal. And then after they're like, oh my God, what did I do? Because the emotions uh, hit in. How do we know that we're not going to save a thousand lives? Because now when a woman finds out she's pregnant, she goes and gets that man to marry her. And now that child is brought up in a healthy household instead of becoming a criminal or killing somebody. I mean, she want, you want to compare Planned Parenthood? You want to have a debate with whether they're really helping poor people by providing abortion? No, what they've done is they have crippled a, an entire generation of young people who now are lawlessly out of control because they did not have a healthy family upbringing. And the reason they didn't have a healthy family upbringing is because Planned Parenthood has convinced their mom and their grandma that life is better without children. So, you know, jumping to that claim that, you know, uh, the pro-life movement is just religious zealots and, you know, don't care about the women. Um, I'd like to have you, you know, maybe describe and then respond to some of the claims of the pro-choice movement. Does the pro-choice movement call pro-lifers anti-woman? The pro-choice movement throws anything they can at pro-life women uh, because pro-life women, most of the pro-life movement is rooted in religion. It's re- rooted in Christianity. These are the people that are trying to rescue uh, the vulnerable, rescue the people that don't have a voice, and stop abortion, uh, because they believe that we should procreate. We're created in God's image, so anyone that's fortunate enough to get pregnant is a blessing, and we want that child because we want whatever gift or talent that God created them to bring into the world to come into the world. Uh, The challenge that I run into a lot with some of this discussion is when the pro-life movement changed their mission to become pro-life as opposed to anti-abortion. I think perhaps we would have ended abortion a lot sooner if we stayed the course as anti-abortion. We were talked into as a movement doing something for the child after it's born, because that was the narrative of the left. You guys don't care about the women because you don't care what happens to them after the child is born. And as a result, people started moving their emphasis to answer that question. Is it a good thing to answer that question? Absolutely. I mean, when you think about slavery, the anti-slavery movement never changed its mission. They were anti-slavery, but there was a gap. There weren't people that were pro-liberty enough to make sure that once those slaves were released into our society, they were somewhere for them to go. So we now have a pro-life community that answers the question about what happens to the child if the mother doesn't want it, if the mother didn't plan it. Uh, And that's our pregnancy care centers all across the country and a whole lot of adoption services. So do you think that the the criticism, because it's a big criticism that, you know, that pro-choice advocates make is that, you know, oh, well, pro-lifers, they don't care about whole life. They just care about unborn life. Is that a fair criticism? And if if not, you know, what what is the pro-life movement doing to care for whole life? Well, it's not a fair criticism for the pro-death community to say, well, you don't care about the whole woman. You just care about whether she has that child because the pro-life community believes in marriage. So what would happen to that child under normal circumstances is the care of the family. The care of the people that were involved in that child coming into conception, that child's grandparents, that on both sides. So there was an interruption uh, when you start putting abortion into a society, and the pro-life community had to catch up with that reality that family, traditional family formation may not happen if a girl gets pregnant. And we saw it not happen as a girl gets pregnant. That's why we have record numbers of single moms out there today. Um, do pro-choicers call pro-lifers anti-science? Do pro-choicers call pro-lifers anti-science? I think that pro-lifers are calling pro-choicers now anti-science because the science is on the side of pro-life. We can look into the womb. We can fix ailments in the womb. So it's the pro-lifers who have the upper hand when it comes to which one is more scientifically uh, relevant uh, to these discussions. How, how has the science changed 
since Roe v. Wade? The science has changed since Roe v. Wade because we keep looking into that great miracle, that awe of life. And so as a result, we have ultrasound, we have ways to do surgery inside the womb. You know, one thing that a man does better than any other created being is we, we attempt to discover, we look for new truths. And in looking for new truths, you're going to have science follow that, uh, that discovery and find new ideas, new um, ways to make things better. And one of those ways is that we have ultrasound. We have um, technology that has come forth that now we can have a better discussion about the meaning of life in that womb. Um, can you can you describe, you know, what what can you tell audiences about kind of the story of Roe v. Wade? You know, who was Jane Roe? What was her situation? How did she get linked up to these pro-abortion advocates? What's that story? You know, I don't know the, all of the story, but I did know Norma. I met Norma uh, early in my walk into this whole pro-life movement. And she was a very challenged woman because from her side of the story, uh, she was talked into becoming the, the, the Jane Doe, if you will, in Roe v. Wade, that she was the one that was, they were going to use her story, a pregnancy outside of marriage, complications, uh, unplanned, uh, to promote this idea. So she died a lonely woman, frankly, thinking that um, she had done our society and herself a disservice being talked into being the face of abortion for the hard left. So is there, is there a painful irony or a cruel irony in the fact that, you know, the, the abortion lobby claims that they're fighting for vulnerable women when even back to, you know, some of their earliest history, they were using vulnerable women for their own purposes. Yeah, I think it is hypocrisy that the, the people that pretend that they care about the most vulnerable the most are preying on the most vulnerable. They're using them, they're killing them. Abortionists won't even own up to when a death occurs at the abortion clinic. They try to wheel them to the hospital. They do anything they can to not tell the family what really went wrong. And a society is complicit because we don't even ask them questions. When people went into Gosnell's clinic on a drug wrap and saw all of those babies frozen, saw the toilet with parts, saw the garbage disposal, saw total and utter filth, you would think we as a nation would have been appalled and ended abortion at that time. But we did it. We didn't get anything but more planned policy and more planned parenthood funding. So I think that um, science is on our side. Dobbs is on our side. But I think many people are wondering if God is on our side to really end abortion, not just make it illegal, make it unthinkable, not block grant it to the states, but declare it as a crime against humanity. That's what I hope the Supreme Court does. This is a crime against humanity. We should not be doing it. No more than we want slavery just block granted back to the states. We tried that. We tried the moving it around, the planned policy, and we ended up in a civil war. Abortion is similar in the way that Roe v. Wade is written, similar to Dred Scott decision, verbatim almost, that this is about property, not humanity. Yeah, can can you can you give us kind of a direct co 